I'm David Torsivia. I'm Daniel Forkner. And this is Ashes, Ashes, a show about systemic issues, cracks in civilization, collapse of the environment, and if we're unlucky, the end of the world. But if we learn from all this, maybe we can stop that. The world might be broken, but it doesn't have to be. In 2017, England's chief medical officer, Professor Davis, said that antimicrobial resistance could spell the end of modern medicine. Quote, we really are facing, if we don't take action now, a dreadful post-antibiotic apocalypse. And so antimicrobial resistance is something that we're going to be talking about today. Actually, it's going to be about 90% of the show. And we have some really excellent experts who are going to be coming on to talk about some research that's going on right now and some uh, perspectives from the field. But we'll get to that in a little bit. Now, why did Professor Davis say this? Well, actually, she said something similar in 2013. She said that the threat from infections was so serious that her government should add it to the National Risk Database of Civil Emergencies. And antibiotic resistance is a huge threat that has gotten much bigger over the past few decades. Now, disease is nothing new when it comes to stressing human civilization. Some of the greatest catastrophes in human history have been because of disease. Things like the Black Plague, which wiped out a huge portion of Europe's entire population. Or the 1918 flu pandemic, which was worldwide causing global impacts. But fortunately, modern medicine and the invention of modern antimicrobials has prevented another pandemic from occurring in the past few decades. But that's beginning to change. And this is a problem right now. In India, it's estimated that because of drug-resistant pathogens, 60,000 babies die every year. And worldwide, the number of deaths that are caused from antimicrobial resistance is reaching over 700,000 people per year. And that number is expected to increase dramatically to as much as 10 million people by 2050. This threat is so high that in 2016, the United Nations convened a meeting with the General Assembly and leaders around the world to discuss this issue. It was the first meeting of its kind, and it got researchers and politicians all over the world scrambling to try and address this growing threat. But again, it's not just antimicrobial resistance that we're concerned about, but the risk of infectious disease in general. And there's a lot of components that go into that. It's very multifaceted. Something that we're going to touch on when we talk to some of these researchers is that there's so much that goes into this risk of disease. But of course, antimicrobial resistance is the ultimate factor. And I want to come back to what Professor Davis said, that this threat might dismantle modern medicine. Because what she said forced me to think about this issue in a way that I hadn't before. See, I thought that the threat of um, you know, infection was just, if there's a superbug out there, I might catch it, and now I'm sick. But it goes much further than that. Well, I don't think we realize just how much we use antibacterials, antimicrobial medicines. There are so many parts of our health system that involve antimicrobials. Say you go in for surgery or cancer treatment where maybe you're not sick from a viral or a bacterial infection, but you're going to be treated with antibacterials as part of this process because your body is vulnerable. Your immune system is compromised and it's that much easier to get sick. So they prescribe these antimicrobials as part of a preventive process to keep you from getting even more ill when you're in this vulnerable state. But if we don't have effective antimicrobials in this process, well, then all these other side parts of the health system where we're not infected by a pathogen but are vulnerable, well, we can't treat people in the same way that we have been. And the medical system falls apart as a whole. 
That's right. It's not just people who come into the hospital who are ill or their immune system is compromised that are at risk of antimicrobial resistant pathogens. But anybody who comes in to have a surgery, for example, now you're opened up, your organs are exposed. A lot of major infections actually do occur in hospital settings. As much as these doctors try to keep everything sterile, bacteria gets in there. And so, like you said, antibiotics is critical to these procedures that we take for granted now as just standard operations in society. C-sections, getting a transplant, having knee surgery, ACL, MCL tears, these are very common in athletes, treating diabetes. All these things can become impossible if you cannot rely on antimicrobial medicine in order to prevent the spread of deadly infections. Not to mention as pathogens become more resistant to certain antimicrobials. Well, we have to go to more exotic and more expensive options. And that makes healthcare as a whole more expensive. As we all know, healthcare costs are already spiraling out of control. So let's touch on a little bit of how this antimicrobial resistance comes about. Obviously, we're going to be talking about this throughout the show, but on a basic level, everyone has heard at this point that there is a problem of overprescription when it comes to antibiotics. Sometimes doctors give them out to patients who have viral infections, so it's really not a good treatment. People don't always take antibiotics for the full length that they're supposed to, which can exacerbate this problem. Well, also, people come in and request antibiotics when they have maybe just a regular cold that we in the past would have ignored or they're just not feeling well. They come in, they say, just prescribe me something. And it contributes to this problem. And also industrial agriculture gets a lot of flack for their use of antibiotics in treating animals, both for feed efficiency, which we'll talk about, but also mass medication for prevention that leads to some pretty serious problems. So overprescription can cause antimicrobial resistance. But before we talk about how that comes about, I want to highlight what an antibiotic is in the first place. And there are really two main categories. You have bactericidals and you have bacteriostatics. These are the two broad categories of antibiotics. And the first category, bactericidals, they simply kill the bacteria just totally kills the cell. And the second type, these bacteriostatics, they prevent in some way the cell from reproducing or growing. And so under these two broad categories, there are tons of different ways that antibiotics can target a pathogen. You know, they can disrupt the cell membrane, which causes cells to spill their guts. They intake too much water and they explode. You can prevent the cell wall from forming. You can prevent DNA and RNA from being synthesized. There's tons of different things that you can do. But bacteria is really smart, which is something we hear a lot from researchers and and medical experts when we're discussing this topic, but at first feels sort of counterintuitive. What does smart mean in this aspect? I mean, they're not going to be going out getting degrees in nuclear physics, but what they do... Don't underestimate the single cell. (laughs) That's very true. But what bacteria are so smart at is evolving and being very good at doing that very quickly. So bacteria replicates at a fantastic rate, at least compared to what we know as humans with our very long uh, reproductive process. This happens very quickly, and that means that we have generations that can happen in just a matter of days, many, many generations. And what that means is that when you apply an evolutionary pressure to this bacteria, in this case, in our example, is some sort of antimicrobial drug. Well, it kills most of the cells and many times all the cells. But what happens in these many generations when you have a mutation or something activates in the epigenetic code of these bacteria? Odds are it's it's nothing. Odds are you get something that is 
harmful to the, the cell or actively kills the cell. But every now and then, every thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of generations, you get a cell that happens to come across some sort of gene or trigger or method of living its life that makes it resistant to these antimicrobials. And when that happens, that means that cell that survived the onslaught of this drug is now the one that's reproducing. And that means the next time you apply this drug, well, it's not as effective because more and more of these resistant pathogens are the ones that are making up the majority of this colony. And it explodes from there. And so what's surprising about that to me is, like I said, I came into this thinking, oh, there's a superbug out there that we've created by overprescribing antibiotics. I might catch that and therefore I get sick. But it's actually deeper than that is when these bacterial cells develop genes that can resist certain antibiotics. Well, those genes can actually intermix with other species and get proliferated among many, many different species of bacteria. And David, you right now could have bacteria in your gut that has one of these genes or one of these mechanisms that makes it resistant to a certain antibiotic. And right now that's not causing any problems because your body has these bacterial species under control. But let's say you get a infection from something else. Maybe it's a viral infection, your immune system is compromised, or something just happens in your gut that allows this particular species to take over. And you need treatment to suppress it. Now, all of a sudden, that treatment might not work. So it's really a problem where this resistance gets into global populations, which then people can be exposed to under certain circumstances. And this resistance that you're talking about, the way it comes about, David, it's why sometimes it's necessary for doctors to combine antibiotics into cocktails. So maybe the bacteria that you're targeting has been exposed to a lot of antibiotics that, let's say, target the cell membrane. So this species has somehow developed a resistance to this drug. And maybe it does that by quickly synthesizing these proteins, which can repair the cell membrane really quickly. Well, then maybe the, the cocktail that the doctor uses in order to treat an infection by this bacteria, in addition to targeting the cell membrane, also targets the cell's ability to create proteins. And now because you're attacking the cell from a lot of different angles, you're able to treat it. And so you mentioned that it can become more expensive to treat these infections that have resistance to drugs, David. But what we're seeing now and what is so alarming to epidemiologists and health officials all over the world is that when these antibiotics stop working and you go to cocktails and you go to higher, more powerful drugs that are more expensive, we've always been able to find a way to treat infections and treat disease for the most part. And if there is a particular species that's hard to combat, we have drugs of last resort. These are things like carpibenums and colistin, which we'll get to in just a second. But what is so surprising is we're now finding pathogens all over the world that are completely resistant to the drugs of last resort. These are the ones that no matter what, <laughs> we come across an infection that's pretty bad and our cocktails aren't working. This is our final weapon and it will always beat this pathogen. Well, now even these are failing. And we have no other options. And these types of threats aren't just limited to developing nations that don't have the built-up health infrastructure of countries like the United States. So here in the U.S., in September of last year, a woman in Nevada died from an incurable infection. Incurable. This is the first time that we've had this pop up since we've had antibiotics, really. Now, researchers, after this woman passed, tested the superbug that had spread throughout her system, and they found that it could fend off 26 different antibiotics. 
quote, it was tested against everything that's available in the United States and nothing was effective, according to Dr. Alexander Cowan, a medical officer of the CDC. And to be more specific, this bacteria, which normally causes urinary tract infections, was sent to the CDC in Atlanta for testing. And the doctors, after studying its genetic makeup, said, actually, we don't have any drug in the United States that would have cured this infection. You know, those 26 different antibiotics that the doctors used, well, it didn't matter. We had nothing in our arsenal that would have been able to cure this infection. And to highlight how this is a global problem, this woman contracted this bacteria most likely from a trip to India where medical practices are a little bit different and there have been more cases of bacteria that are multi-resistant to drugs that we have available. Now, the global nature of this disease being picked up in India, possibly brought to the United States, and then who knows where from there, well, that's really what's setting us up for one of these global catastrophic pandemics. And that's why things are different than they ever have before. We've been able to manage this really well so far with our huge battery of antibacterials. We haven't had a pandemic on an enormous scale for almost 100 years because of our access to this medicine. The risk of a pandemic breaking out has only gone up as we've become more interconnected globally and as the effectiveness of our standard medical practices has fallen. Some epidemiologists predict that an airborne disease could kill more than 30 million people in just a year, and they claim that there is a high probability that this could happen in the next decade. And this isn't just a theory, but this is happening all over the world right now. There has been an outbreak of Lassa fever in Nigeria this year, and it's unusual in a few ways. So typically, the fatality rate for Lassa fever is around 1%. But for Nigerians who are catching this, that fatality rate is around 22%, a tremendous death rate. And by the way, the full name in this disease is Lassa hemorrhagic fever, and in its worst case, is very similar to Ebola. And this means that you can be bleeding out of the mouth and your gastrointestinal tract. And the cause of this outbreak is not entirely clear yet. It's possible that climate variability has led to an increase in a certain rat species that carries the virus, or maybe the virus has simply evolved. But this highlights the need for better training and diagnostic equipment around the world, which is something that we'll harp on later. And another virus case, in March of this year, Colombia has experienced the first case of measles. Now, this is a particularly infectious and virulent virus. It is estimated that one person could pass the infection on to eight more individuals in an environment that's lacking vaccination. And indeed, this outbreak does seem to be a result of unvaccinated people, particularly children, coming to Colombia from neighboring countries. And there has been a lot of drama and political fallout from the now retracted and infamous paper by Andrew Wakefield in 1998 that claimed a link between vaccines and autism. Some medical researchers claim the anti-vaccination conspiracy that resulted set disease prevention back a decade or more. And so it may be tempting to blame the individuals in this example for not being vaccinated and bringing the measles to Colombia, but this is more of a systemic issue. In many Latin American countries, there is a desperate lack of medical supplies and doctors. And so this may be a sign of things to come, as many of these systemic issues that we talk about, David, drive increased conflict and refugees around the world. This movement of people will open pathogens up to more opportunities. But it's not just diseases that we think of, oh, I have a cold that are spreading like this, but also sexually transmitted infections. And these are exploding across the world with antimicrobial resistance. 
There's traditional diseases that this is affecting, things like syphilis, or maybe you've heard recently of super gonorrhea, a completely resistant form of gonorrhea that is proving very difficult to treat and very easy to spread, as well as relatively new STIs like mycoplasma genitalium. By the way, um, apologies to any scientists listening saying we're mispronouncing every single word. Uh, that's just going to happen, most likely. We're trying. <laughs> but these diseases are exploding across the world, spread through sexual contact. Syphilis was traditionally very easy to treat. It's a course of penicillin and then you're cured. But now this very intense disease that has serious effects on mental health and can ultimately cause death is now exploding in a way that we haven't seen ever. And this is also occurring in a disease that we thought we had under control, and that's HIV. Now, we can't think of HIV as a single virus, but really it's a collection of viruses that all cause similar symptoms, much like the common cold. And these viruses are constantly evolving with different strains, flaring up, causing problems, and then being caught and controlled by researchers and doctors. But recent mutations are proving much more difficult to control. One of the places this is occurring is the Philippines. Infections in the Philippines have increased by 140% from 2010 to 2016. And most of this is because of new strains that are proving much more difficult to control with the drugs that we've created over the past few decades. And so the question becomes, how close are we to a global HIV pandemic once more because these strains are spreading out of the places that they're currently exploding? Viruses, bacteria, but also insects are all developing resistance to the methods we employ to fight them. A new article that was published in the Journal of Entomology found that out of 48 states that were tested, 42 of them had lice populations that were completely 100% resistant to common over-the-counter drugs that Americans spend over $350 million on per year to try and fight head lice that gets into children's hair. And this is a new update from a study that was done in the past that found 25 states had populations of lice that were resistant to these over-the-counter drugs. So this means that this resistance is spreading. But of course, David, it is a problem that so many diseases, so many pathogens are becoming resistant to standard medications. But like we mentioned in, in the beginning of this show, the trend that is most alarming to health professionals around the world is the rise of antimicrobial resistant to these drugs of last resort, most notably those class of drugs called carbapenems and the chemical colistin. You would typically only give these drugs to a patient that has an infection that's so bad, it's resisted everything else we've thrown at it. This patient is at risk of dying, and we have no alternative but to give them the most powerful drug that we know of. But now, even these drugs are becoming unreliable. And once your last resort options are no longer available, what do you do? And this is a major concern because one of the genes that encodes for colistin resistance in bacteria, the MCR1 gene, we're now finding this all over the globe. And some recent research suggests that this gene was really selected for on an industrial scale from pig farms in China around 2005, where it then spread to other parts of the world. And what's interesting, David, is the extent to which colistin resistance is a problem is not entirely well understood. It's difficult to study colistin resistance in clinical settings because, like we said, patients who need colistin are usually in such an extreme state of illness that doctors are throwing everything they have at the patient, including colistin, to try and fight this infection, which makes it really hard to isolate the effects of just one drug. And in the lab, researchers have found the presence of heteroresistance in species of bacteria. 
So these are cells that appear to be totally susceptible to medication on a genetic level, but when exposed to the drug, a subset of the population will survive. And what this means is that you could diagnose an infection, and based on the genetic makeup of the pathogen, you conclude that colistin in this case will wipe it out. But then you administer the medication and there's some epigenetic factor that gets triggered in a small group of these cells and now all of a sudden they can resist the antibiotic. Now there is still research needed in understanding how this resistance works for what we thought were last resort options. Okay, it's that time of the episode once more where we need to take a step back. And we've been discussing a lot of antimicrobial resistance, and these are things we're still going to discuss and touch upon as we continue through, but pandemics are very complicated. And it's a multifaceted problem with a lot of elements that goes into it into creating what becomes a global health concern. And some of these researchers that we're about to talk to will highlight the interconnected nature of the environment, animals, humans, and all these factors that play a multifaceted role in our health system and the risk of the spread of infectious disease. But until then, let's look at some of the factors that go into creating these problems in the first place. And of course, as always on this show, let's start with the climate, because this is big right now with climate change, with all the effects that we're doing on the environment, both directly in terms of logging and stress, as well as indirectly from our contributions to anthropogenic warming. Well, it all comes out to having potentially huge impacts on the future health of all of us. One of the great examples of these right now is an explosion in Lyme disease both in the northern United States, where it's typically found, as well as spreading up into Canada. Now, only in the last 10 to 15 years has this started becoming a problem in Canada. With warming winters and longer summers allowing tick populations to slowly creep north. And as these deer ticks move farther north, they carry with them Lyme disease. These cases have increased 600% since 2009. And what's funny is that historically, Canadian doctors haven't studied Lyme disease at all. In fact, I actually spoke with someone who got their medical degree in Canada who said when they were coming up, they were told, hey, Canadians don't get Lyme disease. It just doesn't occur. And so now it's kind of this interesting thing where a lot of doctors feel confused and they're kind of caught between a rock and a hard place where patients will come to them and say, I think I have Lyme disease. I have all the symptoms. I've looked it up on you know, WebMD. And it does appear that they have Lyme disease, but doctors aren't really equipped to diagnose the disease, much less treat it. And so it's created this funny situation where some individuals have actually sent their blood to testing facilities in the United States, spent thousands of dollars to get their blood tested, confirmed that they do have Lyme disease so that they could then take that to their doctor and say, look, I have it. Now please treat me. And it can take a long time and a lot of heartache for some of these people to get treated. And similar situations will occur because of climate change. As the temperature rises in certain places, people will become more at risk for diseases that are traditionally thought of as southern or tropical diseases. Things like Zika, malaria. And if doctors are not prepared for them, like this Lyme case in Canada, Well, if it's a more serious infection, then the consequences of misdiagnosing someone of a more serious infection becomes fatal. But it's not just a matter of moving populations that is part of this problem. Stress on the environment directly also means stress on the animals that live there. And when these wildlife populations start becoming stressed, whether it's because of lack of water, whether the environment starts shifting because of desertification, or direct human impacts like logging on forests, Uh, That allows that steady state of health in animals to break. So this is that thing we talked about earlier where we all have bacteria living in us at all the time. And when we get stressed or our immune system gets compromised, that allows some of these potentially harmful bacteria to 
really explode and cause illness that normally wouldn't be the case. Well, this happens in animals as well. And populations of animals living in stressed environments that stress them, well, these diseases can cause outbreaks in these local populations that can very easily jump to other species and ultimately to humans whether through contact with these animals, through airborne vectors, or by direct consumption of the animals in the food system. But maybe the most horrifying threat here is ice melt. In 2016, 20 people were infected and a child died from anthrax exposure. And it is assumed that this came about from permafrost that had thawed from a heat wave and exposed water sources to a deer carcass that had been infected with anthrax. And because of this anthrax exposure to the water sources, there were a couple thousand living reindeer that were then infected, and this led to humans. There are a great number of species that can survive for a long time in a frozen state. Scientists have revived frozen bacteria as old as 8 million years that were found in Antarctic ice. And scientists have also revived frozen viruses as old as 30,000 years. So the concern becomes, well, if these viruses, if these bacteria have been locked in the ice for tens of thousands or millions of years, well, it's possible that our natural resistance in both humans and wildlife during that time had disappeared. And these bugs, for lack of a better word, when they come back, could cause huge explosions for a population that just isn't prepared for it. Much like happened with smallpox in uh, North, Central, and South America as colonialists moved from Western Europe into these native populations. But David, when you say frozen ice, this makes it seem like, okay, I just don't go to Antarctica or, you know, I don't take any polar trips. But we're really talking about permafrost here. These are areas like in Alaska, the tundras of Canada and and Russia and Siberia, places where you can actually settle. And as the climate warms, places that actually might become appealing for people to settle down and start building towns, villages and civilization. Especially as economic interests start moving in here, like you point out, and we start seeing things where we directly drill into this ground for for oil exploration or mineral extraction. This means we're going to be directly looking for these things, spreading them into populations and bringing us to part two of these threats. Speaking of economic activity, none are maybe more impactful on this topic than industrial agriculture. Animals, livestock, poultry, swine... These are a huge source of diseases that spread to humans. These so-called zoonotic diseases, well, 60% of the 400 emerging infection diseases are from animals like this. This is things like severe acute respiratory syndrome, or maybe better known as SARS. And a big part of the way that these pathogens come about from the industrial practices associated with raising of the animals that we eat is the use of antibiotics. It is estimated that in the United States alone, 70% of all the antibiotics that we use are given to animals for the purpose of mass medicating them to help them grow faster, although new regulation has had an impact on that practice specifically, but also they're given to these animals to try and prevent the outbreak of infections. And like we talked about that MCR1 gene that possibly came from pig farms in China, as this resistance is encouraged in these animal populations, these genes intermix with other species in the environment and eventually find their way into the bacteria and the viruses that we humans interact with. And of course, that 70% figure in the United States, well, globally, half of all antibiotics administered go towards animals. And although in the United States, we're fighting the practice of using these antibiotics to promote growth. With things like the veterinary feed directive, which passed last year. 
Exactly. Well, a lot of countries don't have regulations like that, and these drugs are given out indiscriminately. In the UK, this is a serious problem right now. Researchers have found a large quantity of bacteria species in the chicken that is for sale in retail grocery stores that are completely resistant to antibiotics, which means that people are bringing home food, and if they're not cooking it properly, if they're not using good hygienic practices, they are potentially exposed to this bacteria that is completely resistant to medication. But David, I don't want to go too depth into this topic because we actually traveled to the College of Veterinary Medicine at the University of Georgia to speak with researchers in this field of veterinary medicine. And each of these researchers are studying the role that antimicrobial resistance plays in animals and how that relates to human health. So let's let them shed light on this very important aspect of all of this. So we're here with Dr. Cradil. He is a PhD in physiology and pharmacology who studies antimicrobial resistance in beef cattle as both a clinician and a researcher. He is a professor in beef production medicine and section head of field services at the University of Georgia. So welcome to Ashes Ashes, Dr. Cradil. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you do and some of the research that you are pursuing? Yes, happy to. Our research program right now currently focuses on the epidemiology and mechanisms of antimicrobial resistance in important bacteria associated with respiratory disease in beef cattle. Our goal is to really evaluate how our current antimicrobial use practices within certain populations of beef cattle contribute to resistance in bacteria that are important for us and long-term help develop more sustainable antimicrobial use practices that will, I hope, make the industry more favorable to the public and long-term use this information to improve cattle health and well-being um, across North America. You mentioned uh, making it more favorable. In what ways has it not been favorable to the public? I think there are some perceptions from the public, some right, some wrong, that current antimicrobial use practices in animal agriculture, not just cattle, but swine, poultry, drive a lot of resistance phenomenon that we see um, both in animals and people. Some of the things that we do definitely contribute. I think it's naive to say that we aren't a contributor to the problem, but I, I don't think we're the whole of the problem. So I think that the use of antimicrobials to promote growth, to improve feed efficiency, which is now illegal, certainly when the average consumer who is removed from agriculture by several generations looks at that, it doesn't pass the newspaper test. Um, it, it doesn't make sense to them that we would use a product in that way to make an animal grow more rapidly. It just doesn't sound good. Right. <laughs> um, so one of the things that, that we hope to do is really take a look at how what we're doing is contributing to the problem as a whole I and mean, how we can use that information to really make sure that we're, we're doing right by the animal, but also right by the consumer. Because at the end of the day, um, they're the one who's going to consume the product that we produce, and we have to make sure it's safe and wholesome for them. And if we lose confidence mm -hmm. from that consumer, the industry is is not going to be there long term. So, Well, maybe you can give us an, just a brief overview of right now what the current practice of antimicrobial techniques in uh, raising cattle and bovine and, and touching on swine even maybe is at this moment. For a long time, we used antimicrobials for different purposes. Um, we use them to promote growth and improve feed efficiency. We would use them to treat disease, and we also use them to prevent and control disease. Can you qualify quickly? What is feed efficiency? Well, yeah, what you mean by growth and feed efficiency? Right. So up until January 1st of 2017, certain segments of the beef, dairy, and swine industry 
would include certain antimicrobials. And while we don't necessarily understand exactly how this worked, it actually, the, the discovery of this was really a coincidence. It, they weren't, weren't intended to figure this out, but they would include certain antimicrobials at certain levels in feed or water. And we found that if we included those in the ration or in the water, they were actually more feed efficient and they would grow more rapidly. Feed efficient being the nutrition that they consume? Right. For every pound of feed that they consumed, they would gain more weight than they would without that in there. Again, as of January 1 of 2017, with the passage of the veterinary feed directive regulations, that is now illegal, no longer allowed in any segment of animal agriculture. So currently, we use antimicrobials to treat animals with disease and to prevent and or control disease in animals that are at high risk of contracting a certain disease. So the veterinary feed directive, does it cover anything besides just banning the use of antimicrobials for feed efficiency? What about prevention as well? So in addition to restricting the use of these drugs for the promotion of growth and feed efficiency, what the veterinary feed directive also did is for a long time, these products were available over the counter. No veterinary oversight was required. Um, The veterinary feed directive had the effect of taking antimicrobials that were considered to be, for various reasons, important for human health, had the effect of making them, for lack of a better way to describe it, a prescription product. So the use of those products where even for a treatment or control purpose prior to the VFD wasn't regulated. Do you think that's going to lead to a decrease in the use of drugs and preventing bacterial infection? It's a good question. And the intuitive response would be to say yes. The real answer is, is we don't know yet. What we've seen locally in, in, in our general area is it certainly has contributed to a decrease in overall use. One local feed mill in 2016 used about 3,000 pounds of a drug called chlortetracycline. In the first six months of 2017, they only used 15 pounds. So a 99% decrease in, in a year, but that's one place. So I have to see what happens across the U.S. And then the question is, is that entirely positive? I mean, maybe some of the use was good. Certainly. And and so if you look at what we saw in Denmark, for example, there were certain situations where once those antimicrobials were removed, the rates of certain diseases did increase. So overall prescribing, it went down, but not to the same levels they thought that it would. We saw more disease, so it required more treatment. So we'll have to see. So it's sort of shifting from prevention to treatment. Right. So there's this idea that even if it's for a disease prevention purpose, it may be at a level that's high enough to keep some subclinical disease at bay. And the idea that we remove it, that subclinical disease now rears its head and you have more therapeutic use. Real quick, can we just take one step back? Because you did mention that some people put too much blame on uh, livestock practices for the rise of antibacterial resistance and pathogens. Can you just briefly go over how this microbial resistance in animals translates into a human problem? Right. So there are several different ways that that might happen. Probably the most common, the one we worry about the most, would be that we have a consumer that purchases a product, uh, milk, poultry, pork ground beef, whatever it may be, and that product is contaminated with some pathogenic bacteria. Salmonella would be one of the more important ones. Um, Campylobacter would be another. They would consume that product. They would develop whatever clinical signs would be associated with infection with that bacteria. And because those bacteria are resistant, we won't be able to treat them should an antimicrobial be required. That's probably the, the biggest issue that we see. Another way that it could happen, probably a bit less commonly, is contact. So um, you have an animal that is a carrier for some medically important bacteria. You are in close contact with a dog, a cat, horse, cow, whatever it may be, swine. 
And from contact, it, it just is transmitted to you and you pick it up. And it's not just bacteria that we have a problem when it comes to resistance, but you've also studied the way viruses play a role in this, right? Is there a difference in the way that bacteria and viruses develop resistance? For us, respiratory disease in cattle, which is my focus area, viruses set the stage for the bacteria to cause clinical signs. So the viruses often are the primary problem, but our treatment efforts are then aimed at the bacteria. The viruses, by the time we see the animals, are generally gone, and the bacteria are what we're left to deal with. So somehow the virus is opening the door for a larger bacteria. How does that work? We see various different viruses that contribute to disease within different animal populations. Um, In cattle, we see herpes viruses. Um, We see, in some cases, we can see certain types of influenza viruses different from what we see in people, but still in that same general family of influenza. And what they do is they can damage the respiratory tract. They can also suppress immune function. And by damaging the respiratory tract, suppressing immune function, it then allows bacteria, which normally live in the airway at low levels to increase in number, elaborate toxins and cause disease. Okay. So kind of bringing it back to that human problem, it's almost like we can have a small percentage of resistant bacteria in our system or in an animal system, but because the immune system is functioning healthy, it's suppressed and it's not causing a problem. So it's only when you somehow allow that bacteria to expand, now you have to deal with it, but oh wait, it's resistant to our medication. Right. Can I ask you sort of the economic angle of this? So by reducing this antimicrobial use in feed and making that feed less efficient, I guess that ultimately will have a numerical effect on how much that meat or whatever other product ultimately costs because Correct. that efficiency goes down. Is there somebody who has looked at that number and, and knows what right. that actual effect is when it measures out? The USDA, prior to the veterinary feed director regulations going into effect in January 2017, did some economic modeling using data derived from swine and poultry populations. There, there really wasn't a lot of information in dairy or beef cattle populations, so they had to extrapolate a little bit. And yes, there will be an increase in cost that will ultimately be passed to the consumer associated with the decrease in use. To be honest with you, it's relatively minuscule. It's relative to what it potentially could be. Mm -hmm. It's not quite what I thought it could have been. The economic impact of it when these models came out and using the data that they had, in my mind, it was minor. So I guess that probably Uh, helped spur the the passing of this bill. If farmers and consumers don't have to worry about uh, as much of an economic consequence of this, then it makes that trade-off in saying, well, let's protect these antimicrobials instead uh, that much easier to do. These regulations really affected a minority of cattle producers across the U.S. The average cattle producer here in the state of Georgia, this has had very little impact on them. And the good news is the people that weren't using these products to start with, whether they be a natural, organic, or even a conventional farm that just didn't use them, there was actually an economic benefit for them because they weren't using them from the start. Now they don't have to compete with those who are to gain that very marginal increase in feed efficiency. Right. And so for them, they should theoretically be receiving a, for lack of a better way to say it, a premium that at the end of the day would be back in their pocket. So it was a boost for them in a way. What does a more sustainable practice look like, at least in your experience working with cattle? So I think that long-term, our focus has to become more of a management focus. That, I mean, no matter how well we do things, what vaccine we use, how good the nutritional plane is, we're going to have disease. There's no way around it. But if we do our jobs the right way, the risk of disease should be at a relatively low rate. So I think that long term, what we have to look at is using management, using nutrition, using vaccines to prevent disease. We make sure that the animals are as healthy as possible 
And we've done everything that we can in our power to keep disease out of a herd, out of a population. But when it does happen, we have products that are available that are effective for their intended use, but are only used in a small subset of animals that truly have disease. Temple Grandin has actually been here for the last two days, and Temple is a faculty member at Colorado State and is known for her expertise in livestock handling and animal welfare. And we've had some discussions um, at the time that she's been here about um, what we call high-risk cattle. And high-risk cattle are basically calves that are taken from the cow on the farm, sent to an auction market somewhere nearby. They're commingled with calves from multiple other different farms. And because of that, are at incredibly high risk of respiratory disease. It is not uncommon for calves like that for 60, 70, 80% of them to be diagnosed with respiratory disease after they get to the destination. How do we deal with that? Well, there's not an economic incentive for the producer to do more with that calf. The producer who vaccinates and uses management to improve animal health gets the same price as the producer that does absolutely nothing. There's not an economic incentive there. One of the things that we've done here in Georgia is myself and a group of faculty members in the Animal and Dairy Science Department here at UGA are working on what's called the Georgia Verified Program. And the idea is that producers who want to do the extra things with their cattle are going to be able to take their animals to a special sale that should almost guarantee them an extra incentive economically so they you know they're going to spend more money but they're going to make more money too that's been one of the biggest challenges we face is that the economic incentives to do those things at least in our area just aren't there yet other states they're there you know 90% of producers and 90% of cattle go through those types of programs they see the value in it down here in the southeast we've got a ways to go but that's the challenge that we face but we have to use management and again when we see disease we treat disease the way that it needs to be treated but it becomes something that's just uncommon have to be a little bit more, I don't want to use the term holistic, but I think it's the best way is, is again, we, we're using vaccines, nutrition, management. We avoid the use of antimicrobials until we absolutely need them. I know you mentioned prevention, but does disease in some way play an important role? Is it good to have some level of disease in livestock populations, in human populations? Is there any good that comes out of it? That is an interesting philosophical question. You know, it, it's interesting. So there's a, a study they did in poultry populations where they looked at vaccines that weren't optimally effective. And what I mean by that was rather than protecting 90% of a population, they only protected 50. And what they found was a vaccine that only protected 50% of the population was actually worse than not vaccinating at all. What would happen would be that if you don't vaccinate anybody, the disease comes through and it wipes out the at-risk animals. Mm -hmm. And so you're left with a population of animals that's just hardier Mm -hmm. and is able to survive that natural challenge. If we have a vaccine that's effective 50% of the time, what happens is you have a population of animals that may not die. And because of that, the disease is able to spread more efficiently through the population. So is some disease good from a productivity standpoint, from an animal welfare standpoint? I don't think so. I, I hate to see a calf, for example, that has diarrhea within a population of animals. Because I know that, honestly, if I'm doing my job the right way as a herd veterinarian, I should see no diarrhea at all. And those calves, yes, most will survive, but they weigh less when they're weaned. They don't perform as well as a calf that didn't have disease. So from a, from a welfare perspective, from a productivity perspective, to me, there's not a ton of benefit of having a low level of disease present because I think that even a low level of disease harms the animal in ways that we, it's hard for us to measure. An example where it may be beneficial to have some disease, parasites. For a long time, we've said no parasites. Don't, we, don't, we don't want to see parasites within a population, but we're starting to realize that animals 
cattle particularly, horses too, have evolved with parasites over time. There may be a level that's not harmful to the animal and that a low level of parasitism may almost act like a vaccine. Again, there's a point where it's excessive, but at a, again, a low enough level, you don't have any problems and those animals would be animals that we could use through genetic selection to say, wow, these animals have lower parasite levels without any intervention. This is an animal that I would select for over the long term. So I think it probably depends on the situation that you look at, the disease that you look at as to how beneficial that may be. In the face of what seems to be a rising risk of infectious disease worldwide, are you an optimist? Do you feel like we're making progress in responding to that? Or do you think there are a lot of challenges going forward? I definitely think that everything where it is, we are we're moving in the right direction. We still have challenges, but I think we have people whether it's human or animal, that have the tools that they need, the expertise um, in whatever area they may be focused on to handle these challenges as we move forward. We have the tools there. There are some cases where the, the tools already exist. We just have to convince people to use them. So, no, I, I'm, I'm an optimist, and I don't, I don't think that things are as bleak as some people might make them out to be. Like us on Ashes Ashes. The right people are here. We have the right tools. We'll be able to develop the right tools. And I think long-term we'll be in the place where we need to be. Any final comments you want to make? I think you hear different things about production animal agriculture and whether it be good or whether it be bad. I do think that um, without farmers, whatever they may farm, crops, animals, both, they're good people. And um, without them producing the products that they produce, this country um, wouldn't be where it is. They definitely help feed this population, the world's population. And I think animal agriculture, all in all, is an enjoyable place to work with a lot of good people. And I think the average person can really be comfortable in knowing that whatever they purchase, beef, poultry, pork, vegetables, is safe. We do a good job of making sure that the consumer is going to have something that is wholesome, nutritious on their plate at the end of the day. Well, thank you. Thank you for being on. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Enjoyed being here. We are joined now by Dr. Catherine Logue and Dr. Susan Sanchez. Dr. Logue has a PhD in microbiology from the University of Ulster, and she is Professor of Population Health at the University of Georgia College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Sanchez has a PhD in biology and clinical microbiology. She is Professor and Section Head of Microbiology and Molecular Biology at the College of Veterinary Medicine, and she is Assistant Director and Chair of One Health at the Biomedical and Health Sciences Institute. Dr. Logue, can you tell us a bit about your background? So my area of research has always been around meat, meat production, animal health. So if it's been slaughtered, I've probably seen it. So I've worked a lot in different areas. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of weird to tell people, but I've seen it all. <laughs> so I've worked in beef, I've worked in cattle, I've worked in pork, I've worked in poultry, turkeys and chickens. What is your, your current focus of research? We're looking at cellulitis in uh, turkey production, um, looking at uh, E. coli that cause disease in, in birds like that. And I've always been interested in antimicrobial resistance of E. coli. We look at uh, E. coli that cause disease in poultry, the same kind of E. coli strains that cause human urinary tract infection, the same strains that cause neonatal meningitis E. coli in, in newborns. And then um, my colleague looks at them from the pathogenesis point of view, and I look at them from the antimicrobial resistance, what kind of resistances they carry, what kind of resistances they, they show up for things like that. Are you seeing that there's an increase in antimicrobial resistance uh, within animal populations? It's very hard to tell because there's always some level of resistance there. And some of it's historical that bacteria are smart. They pick up things and then they hold on to them. Uh, we're seeing different kinds of resistance now that we would have seen maybe 10, 15 years ago. What kind of resistance are you seeing that's startling or surprising you? We're seeing a lot more strains that have multi-drugs on them. So they'll, instead of just being resistant to one or two things, we've got some strains that are resistant to a lot more. 
Sometimes, depending on where the isolates that I study come from, they'll have like maybe even 10 resistances or some of the super ones that I have of like maybe 15 resistances, which is kind of scary. Mm-hmm. So they exist out there. And then we started looking for, you've heard of Coliston? Yes. The last drug of resort now? So what I understand from Coliston resistance is that there's a particular gene. MCR1. That has been traced back to a pig farm in China. Is that right? Or is it more complicated than that? I think it's a little more complicated than that. It's probably not just a single farm. It's probably what they think is in countries that use colistin as a supplement, that that's where they saw it emerge first. And all of this started to break about two years ago. And we have historical collections from around the world. So we went and looked at ours to see what we had. And we found it in strains from China and Egypt, the same as other people did. But we found them in disease-causing strains that cause disease in poultry, which was kind of a big deal. You mentioned uh, Colston uses a supplement. Is that one of the drugs also used for feed efficiency or is this just for treatment? I can't say for sure that that's what it was being used for. I do know it was being used in certain parts of the world, not everywhere. Different countries have different prescribing practices. And I guess it changed pretty dramatically here in the U.S. Well, the U.S. have never used it. It's not been used here. I mean, not just in terms of that, but our, our entire pharmaceutical prescription with uh, animals. Well, the veterinary feed directive changed all that, yes. So now what they're saying is that if you're going to use a drug in production systems, then you have to have a veterinary sign-off for it. It's all going to come under veterinary oversight. You've got to have a veterinarian that's going to prescribe it for you. Now everything's going to have to have a prescription. You're going to have to have a reason for needing it. So it's, it's really all about good stewardship. It's all about controlling it back down. I mean, there are farms that are still going to need something. And this gives them the, at least the protection of, well, why do you need this? I mean, you can't have a house of 10,000 birds get sick. You can't mm-hmm. put product like that into commerce if the birds are sick. So you've got to have a way to treat them. So now you're going to work with a veterinarian and get a prescription when you need it. It makes perfect sense. The new uh, feed directive is fantastic. There's no more farmers treating individually. You're going to the feed store and being able to buy antibiotics. That is all gone. Well, Dr. Sanchez, you are the chair of One Health at the University of Georgia. Can you tell us a little bit about what One Health is? It's a question that everybody asks. It's not one type of research. It's it's an approach to health, that we should not look at health into silences, into veterinary medicine, public health, human health, but we should look at health as all of us involved in it, human animals, and of course, for certain areas, the environment too. So it's that nexus between all those three areas that is important to look at and to address. Uh, Antimacrural resistance is one of the biggest and best examples. So every single component is involved. The environment is a reservoir for antimicrobial resistant bacteria. It doesn't matter where it comes from, lakes, water, fields that have been fertilized. And that's something that we shouldn't forget when we're looking at stewardship and the spread of antimicrobial resistant animals and people. So that's the idea of One Health, to look at problems in a more global perspective. Because if we try to tackle problems individually or in a silo, we're not going to fix problems. We're just going to make people some money, get some grants. At the end of the day, we're not going to solve the problem. <laughs> I suppose a lot of diseases are zoonotic in origin, right? There's something 60% of emerging diseases, I think, are zoonotic. Probably about right, yeah. Yeah. It probably is, yeah. Yeah. Do either of you have a good example of a recent zoonotic transmission that our listeners would find interesting? So colistin resistance is a good example. And it started out, they started seeing these resistant bacteria, whether they were salmonella or E. coli, in the production animals. And then somehow or other, you started seeing the same thing in human populations. So somehow or other, it's matriculated or trickled through the system. So probably meat, meat production, 
And now we're seeing the same thing in humans, so it's probably a good example. And we've seen it not just in, in E. coli, but you see it in salmonella as well and plenty of other gram-negatives. So it, it's moving. It's moving through. And that's probably the best example right now. That's the one that everybody's kind of freaking out about. You'll see a lot of arguments about it. That's close to home, but I was just thinking Ebola, for example. That was a big thing. And, you know, if you go back to it, even HIV is a zoonotic disease. So the big pandemics, they're all zoonotic, but um, close to home, I think. But right now in the U.S. is, is colistin resistance and antimicrobial resistance a big problem. Just generally, how have our practices contributed to antimicrobial resistance and maybe specifically colistin that we're dealing with right now? Is it something that has just naturally occurred or is there something in the way that we have been trying to prevent or treat for infections that has led us to this situation now? Well, if you think about animal production, it's a lot more intensive than it was if you go back 100 years. So you've got a lot more animals in a smaller area. And when those animals are together like that, you're going to get things where somebody gets sick and then a lot of, lot of individual animals get sick. And, you know, over the years, they've had to find a way to treat this or control for it. And, some, and it's not always been feed efficiency. Sometimes it's just a matter of treatment. And that's sort of how the colison thing came about. It's one of those drugs that, that was working. In certain parts of the world, they've used it, not everywhere. I think the reason they didn't use it here in the States is kind of an expensive drug. I think there were a lot more cheaper alternatives that protected the herd or whatever you had. The bacteria themselves, though, are kind of smart. Bacteria find things. The genetics of a bacteria is always changing and it's in flux. So maybe along the way, a bacteria developed a natural resistance to this. And this, the next thing is, it's like, oh, this is kind of a great trait to have. And then it passes it to generations and then it passes it to other bugs. So it's one of those things. I, I mean, my colleagues, we've always kind of described it as bacteria are smart. They pick up something and if it's of value, they'll hold on to it. If it's not worth it, they get rid of it. And colistin was probably one of those things that they held on to. And then what happened is you started selecting for those bugs. And then as you selected for them, away you go. I don't think it's probably, is it a misuse or abuse thing? I think it's, it's just, it just happens. And it just happened because they used that drug there or in certain parts of the world and maybe didn't use it somewhere else. So it's just gotten moved around and you just you just suddenly see a wave, wave of it move through. It's it's not unusual. I mean, look at how we do commerce nowadays where, where production moves through. I mean, something on one side of the world can be sold on the other side of the world like a day or two days later. It's not unusual. So that's how things move around. I don't always think it's abuse. I think sometimes it's just the bacteria are evolving so fast. I agree with you, with your perspective on the transmission. Well, let me ask you this. So you mentioned things move around really fast. And you also mentioned Ebola. That was a huge risk in the past. And we saw a small outbreak of Ebola in, I think it was the Congo of last year. And recently, it's been reported that the CDC is reducing epidemic prevention in 39 countries around the world. This is because of epidemic prevention funding that is coming to a close. And one of the countries that we're leaving is the Congo. So the question is, how important is it to monitor and track and treat these infections worldwide? I mean, do we in the United States have to worry about an infection halfway around the world? Is that anything that we need to be concerned about? Yes, we should. That's the mission of the CDC is to protect its people at home and abroad. It's funny because I had to look this up last week for something else I was writing. But having a presence elsewhere gives you an idea of what's going on. It's like the next SARS. Don't you want to know what it is before it ever gets here? So by having people on the ground there or people that see something like, okay, there's something new, there's something emerging. And that's what the CDC has always kind of done for that. Mm -hmm. 
you know, you're prepared for it if it comes this way. It's the same way with how we model for flu vaccines. You know what strains are emerging. And then once you know what's there, then you're ready for it when it when it does transfer to this side of the world. CDC and uh, USAID, both of them, have been doing a great job of preserving our borders by helping others be able to detect these diseases and control them. So it's better to control them out there than have to bottle them inside once they come in. So it's, it's critical that we continue to have that funding. Since we're on the topic of borders and things moving, so I know, Dr. Sanchez, you've studied tick-borne illnesses at some point. Mm-hmm. And right now, because of climate change, some species of ticks are moving north that otherwise wouldn't have been. And a lot of Canadian doctors are really confused right now because a lot of Canadians are being infected by Lyme disease and they don't know how to diagnose it. So I'm curious, how do you see climate change impacting the risk of infectious disease going forward? Not just uh, tick-borne diseases, but other diseases uh, as well. And I think it's going to impact us. It's currently impacting us. Diponosoma cruci, for example, is a parasitic disease that we didn't have in the U.S. But now it's moving up into Texas from Mexico, and uh, we've seen some some cases around here. So it is just a problem, and it's going to continue to increase. It, we just have to train our doctors and our veterinarians to act, be able to recognize diseases that are not currently in the country, but it could come in there and be able to anticipate and diagnose them. You've got to get the young veterinarians coming up. They've got to be able to see these things. They've got to be able to to relate it back. I mean, and then the same with physicians. They've got to be able to see it from the clinical side, the human side. But that's all about the training and that's all about getting that material out there that they see that and they learn. And there's no better way to learn it than to, to see it when it happens. Y'all both mentioned that this is something that we're just seeing is changes in antimicrobial resistance. Do you feel that antimicrobial resistance is outpacing our ability to treat them with antibiotics? Well, you've you've heard the stories about how they develop a drug and then within a year or two that drug's no longer working. The problem is the pipeline. And if you go back and look at the literature and what people are saying right now, the big pharma industries can't develop these things fast enough. I mean, what does it take like a billion dollars to get a drug developed and get it to work mm-hmm. and get it to market? I mean, it's it's that far down the line. And drugs take what more than 10 years to develop. I mean, that's part of the challenge. And then looking for alternative ways to find these drugs and these natural antimicrobial systems. I mean, that's that's a lot of legwork ahead of time. But think about this for somebody like a big pharma company. That's a lot of investment on the upfront end. And then if that drug is going to be gone in two years or no longer effective, they got to start all over again. And there's less and less drug companies doing this now, which is the sad part about it, because it's it's so expensive to do. And actually, at the end, with antibiotics, a person gets a, a course of antibiotics three, five, seven days, and they don't need them anymore. There's not really that much return on investment for big pharma with antibiotics. Are there innovations taking place? There is a lot of investigation of alternatives, um, looking at the natural things again, coming back to the natural oils. Cinnamon was out there at one point. Oregano. I mean, there's all these things that people are willing to try to get them away from the drug. They're even trying them in animal feed. The trick is is to get the animal to eat it. You know, you can't put it in too high that it taints the flavor because animals will refuse feed if it's if it's too strong. But it's going down those avenues other natural things that they can use. And and there's a lot of investigation in it right now, trying to find those alternative agents to take us away from just the classic drug. 
And I think also there's a big push on looking to look into vaccines and can we vaccinate for certain types of infections so we don't have to treat, but the infection will be prevented. So, but that's going to in its infancy. And uh, I think with many of the new technologies, both in the sequencing and new research abilities that we have, it's very likely that we could develop vaccines for bacteria that are really effective. So viruses are very interesting. We talked to Dr. Kudil yesterday and he mentioned how in cows, sometimes they just harbor bacteria that has a certain resistance. Then an infection comes along from a virus that maybe they get respiratory infections. And then all of a sudden that bacteria, because their immune system is depleted, that bacteria with that resistance is allowed to take over. Is that the risk in humans? Are we all holding on to some bacteria, maybe in our gut that's resistant and it just takes becoming sick? You've heard of Clostridium difficile. And a lot of patients, if they're in hospital for long periods of time, will suddenly develop a C. difficile infection. I mean, humans naturally carry that in their gut. But when if you're treating them in a hospital and you give them antibiotics, the gut flora gets switched out. You disrupt the flora. So the minority species suddenly becomes the majority and it makes the patient sick. And they've got ways to treat for that now. They're trying to control it. But it's, it's one of those things. We do we do harbor certain things that if they're given the right moment in time, they will switch over and become the bad bug that you don't really want to think about. In people, if you have an upper respiratory infection and you have a bacteria that is resistant that colonizes your nose and your nasal passages, you might end up with a secondary bacterial infection after your viral infection with a sinus infection, for example. That is a bacterial origin and it could be resistant because that's the geonormal part of your normal flora. So it's very similar to what happened in animals. But I mean, think about it. It's just, it is what it is. And it's just sometimes certain things take over. I mean, we see it with poultry production. We have E. coli that can happily harbor these E. coli. And then all of a sudden the E. coli just, they call them the opportunist. The low level bug suddenly becomes the big opportunist and something sets it off, whether it's ammonia levels in houses or whether it's um, stress or heat or temperature or something happens and something flips and something changes and then it just goes. Looking at this from a systems perspective, so we did a show on wildfires and the risk of wildfires, and we spoke to two firefighters from the U.S. Forest Service. And what we found is that it seems that in fighting every single fire in the United States and globally, we actually paved the way for even the the risk of even greater fires in the future because some of these low intense fires that came through actually were healthy for forests, kept them healthy, prevented overgrowth. So I guess what we're kind of curious about is... Is there an analogy? Yeah, is there some... The answer is yeah. So is there some level of disease that's good for us, good for populations that maybe we shouldn't be trying to prevent if we're looking at this from a global like... Well, when you were a kid, did you get to go outside and, you know, play in the mud and, you know, your mother wasn't worried about you? I did when I wasn't you know when you weren't supposed to you, you know when i was a kid you went out there and did stuff like that and you probably did pick up a god he knows what and your mother just eh, you were fine throw you in the bath and clean you up i mean you have to challenge the system for healthy kids you got to challenge them you got to get exposed to things there's some things you probably don't want to expose them to but that's the nature of what we should be able to do <laughs> the, the immune system has to be ready for challenges and the only way to do it is by training it with environmental organisms and um, being able to fend them off and you're stronger. When we're talking about working towards preventing this antimicrobial resistance from becoming a problem for human health, um, we've talked about things like the VFD, which passed last year. And I guess it's not entirely a, a animal antimicrobial problem. And there's a number of factors that come into it. You get the human side of it, too. I mean, they've been training younger physicians and training physicians. I always remember this when I was small. Uh, you don't need a pill for every ill. 
So I think promoting uh, antimicrobial stewardship on the health, human health side is a big deal, too. Not every child who gets sick needs a drug. I mean, sometimes it's a virus, and you can't really give an antibiotic for a virus. So there are things that have to run their course. And I think stewardship on the human medical side has really changed a lot, too. I think there's a realization that, yeah, that's probably part of the problem, and we can control it better by being more efficient in how they do things or don't just write a prescription. Get to the bottom of what's going on first. I'm going to be a little controversial. I'm going to bring the societal aspect of things. In in our society these days, our mothers work. Grandparents normally are not around. So if a child gets an illness, it's imperative that the child gets better and can get into daycare fairly quickly. And uh, there's an expectation and a need for this to happen. Uh, in the past, mm-hmm. um, mom was around, you know, there would be no problem. Because the child had time to recover? Yes, and mothers don't have time now to, to take care of the kids at home and spend three, four days taking them through a viral infection course. The kids need to go to daycare, and the only way to do go to daycare is they are on antibiotics. <laughs> uh, the moment they be given antibiotics, they can go back to daycare. So it's a whole s- society or environment, quote unquote, uh, that is promoting this need from the parents to get antibiotics and, and forces the doctors to try to give it to them to make them happy. So a good stewardship, better training and the ability for mothers to be able to stay home or dads for that matter. Uh, we don't have a society that is very, or healthcare that is very conducive to that. But also, doctors are pressured to get patients in and out as quickly as possible. Absolutely, yeah. And uh, that can also mean there's not enough time to sit there and accurately address all the concerns. It's easier just to write a prescription, especially when you have pressures from pharmaceutical industries to do just that. And so you're balancing these economic incentives with the health incentives and stewardship of global health at the same time. Very true, yeah. So is there, beyond the stewardship things we mentioned, is there a need for a regulatory framework or is this something that um, civilians, people who aren't in the health industry just need to be more aware of? Or like One Health would suggest, is this a multifaceted problem that needs lots of solutions from many angles? I think it is multifaceted. I think I've heard this before from the drug company side that it takes so long to get something through, to get it approved and regulatory. And, you know, the pressures to try and ease that bottleneck up and that'll help. There needs to be a lot more investment because clearly we're going to keep running out of drugs at the rate we're going. There's less and less number of companies that want to do R&D on this stuff now. So we're not going to have them on the other end if we don't start at the pharma end or the investigative end, being able to come up with candidates. I mean, we have to come up with candidates and then test them and see if they work and then move them through the system. So there's many aspects that need work done. Investigating alternatives, investigating vaccines. That's obviously a great alternative we can come up with. So there's no drug, it's a vaccine instead. And finding ways to develop all that. Finding ways to create those partnerships between the industry side of things and the academic side, you know, where some of the research can be done. And then creating those good collaborations will help with a lot. And basically all of that, it requires funding. And even a good stewardship program requires funding. Hospitals can implement stewardship programs and then compare their stewardship with other hospitals. And they have regional and national stewardships and awards for those people that actually maintain you know, high standards and levels of stewardship. But if that's going to cost them money, who's going to pay for that? Insurances are not going to pay. So where does the money come from? We need more funding in all areas to win this war. Otherwise, we're not going to win it. Well, and and speaking about just health in general, um, you mentioned, Dr. Logue, how this bacteria is able to spread a lot easier when you have a lot of cattle together. Intensive agriculture, yeah. Maybe there's just a better way of doing industrial practices where it's not so concentrated and and not so compartmentalized. But again, there are economic centers at play, right? 
Well, there is. And then you've also got to think of how many people you got to feed. Considering the world population is going to be seven and a half billion and everybody needs to be fed. It's come down to, to doing this at higher populations and smaller areas. And we have no choice. If we go back to the grazing landscapes, we're not going to be able to produce enough. That's the sad part about it. How else can we do it? Mealworms. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's cheap protein. <laughs> you go first, Dr. Sanchez. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, it's tongue-in-cheek, but we really have to come up with ways of uh, be able to do more intensive farming without the risk of antimicrobial resistance or other risks. And we need to be able to control it and understand it. And it's just we run into this intensive farming with ignorance and really not knowing what's going to happen. And then, oh, this is what happens. But now we're in the in the process of hopefully understanding and fixing it. And by, you know, 2050, we really can. How many million will be there? 10 billion? So are y'all optimistic about the state of infectious disease going forward? Do you think we're on the right track or are there many obstacles ahead? I think we're on the right track. I think the veterinary feed directive gives us a good place to go. I think stewardship has gotten better. I think the next generation of doctors and veterinarians coming up will look at this differently. I think they'll be much more, you know, restrictive and ask the questions. I think I think that generation will ask a lot more. It's going to take a lot more R&D over time. We, we're going to need a lot more. And there's a lot more innovation out there. We just need to tap into it. I think there's somebody out there right now, that 12-year-old or 10-year-old that's wandering around here today, and is probably already thinking about it. And that's the next generation. It's just bringing them up and getting them going. So we need the right infrastructure to help the young minds to be able to achieve what they need to achieve. And they're, they're going to save us. So, um, so more money for, for education. Uh, education and research. Uh, if either of you have specific comments you want to add to this or um, organizations you think are doing the right thing that you, you'd really like to plug or, or let listeners know about. FDA's done a really good job of kind of keep track of things. CDC does great from the human health side. And, you know, we talked before about how the funding is changing, and that's going to be a big change in what happens there. And it's I'm sad to see that, but maybe we can train those individuals in other countries before the CDC pulls back, have have a team there in place and, you know, be able to work with them even from a distance. I would like to give um, some kudos to CDC and USDA. They actually, although they are two individual silos, they actually have offices in each other's institutions and I know one health office, so and they have delegates, USDA people are uh, in the CDC. And so they really try, and, uh, although the structure of the government is very rigid. Slow but steady progress. And I think, you know, you'll see that as generations come through, the younger scientists coming through will work in a different manner. I mean, it's, it's all there. It's just it's just creating those collaborations and building those bridges and keeping those bridges up. The days of the single researcher that knows everything is all gone. <laughs> exactly. I mean, we all work together now. I've been on email this morning with a guy at Florida who's a, who's a pediatrician. So, I mean, we're finding ways to, to do things together. We're finding ways that are common between us all. We want to look at the same things. He's looking at it from the human health side. I'm looking at it from the bacteria side. We can do that, but you got to be willing to do that. Step forward, step out, make those bridges, make those connections. I think a little outside the box. And also maintaining that open access to uh, the research that you put out so that people who aren't in these institutions like this position have access to that and can reach out to you about the things. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, he reaches to us, we reach to him and we found things that are in common between both of us. Open access publications is a very, very important issue. But I think we are taking the right steps right now. Could get better, should get better, but it's going to take a little bit of time from everybody. But it's a good way to go. Something we're going to discuss in detail in a future episode. So maybe we'll be back asking you questions <laughs> about that. 
Sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Logue. Thank you, Dr. Sanchez, for joining us. We really appreciate your perspective. Good to chat to you. Thank you very much. Thank you to both of you. Thanks so much. Good to chat. Bye-bye. So one of the things I thought was really interesting here, Daniel, was the mention that they had looking for some more natural solutions to these problems. And for me, what was so funny about that was you mentioned earlier that China uses a huge portion of the world's antibiotics. Well, that's right, David. Chinese doctors prescribe roughly 10 times the antibiotic dosage that American doctors do. And they do. They use about 50% of the world's antibiotics each year, despite the fact that they're home to 18% of the world's population. A huge number, no doubt, but still a greater proportion of antibiotics than any other country in the world. Right. And in the West, at least, we have this perception that Eastern medical practices are very traditional and natural. But uh, it's sort of funny to me to listen to this where we have these Western researchers talking about things like cinnamon as a potential antibacterial, while China is going crazy prescribing these antibacterials that maybe we would consider a more traditionally Western type of medicine. But it's encouraging that we are looking at these natural alternatives to this very industrial process, which in and of itself, the the production of these drugs has severe impacts on the creation of these antimicrobial resistant pathogens. Dr. Sanchez spoke about One Health and how the health of all of this is interconnected, the health of the environment, the health of our animals and our humans. And all of these researchers that we talked to did point out that we can't put all the blame for the risk of infectious disease on animal medicine. And so I do actually want to focus real quick on the environmental component because it's not something that we've touched on in great depth yet. And that's that there's a huge share of microbials in the environment, as you would expect. And a lot of them have natural resistance to certain things like our pesticides, our herbicides. Because of all the inputs that we're putting into the environment, a lot of resistance is developing and has developed naturally in species in our environment. And a lot of these species are not harmful to humans. And the more resistance there is in the environment, the more that these genes that encode for that resistance can pass to other species and become part of these species that can impact humans. And there are countless examples of industries that pollute the environment. And the degree to which this can encourage this resistance is a shocking discovery, particularly in India. So scientists studying the waste that's being put out by pharmaceutical companies in India found in 2006 that companies were dumping enormous volumes of antibiotics directly into rivers. And antibiotics were concentrated 31,000 times higher than what you would expect from a typical sewage sample in other parts of the world. And of course, they were finding bacterial species in the environment that were highly resistant to antibiotics, including bacteria that causes infections in humans. And since then, India has put regulation in place to try and prevent pharmaceutical companies from getting away with direct liquid waste pollution. But antibiotics are still allowed in wastewater, and there are high levels that are still being found in the environment. And while this is a huge problem in India that, like we mentioned earlier, can have direct effects on human health with that superbug that caused a fatality in Nevada last year, well, this happens everywhere. Antibiotics leach from farms, from sewage. I mean, if you're on a bacterial course and you go to the bathroom, well, you're putting antibiotics directly into the sewage system. And many other means are all pouring into the environment in all sorts of different ways. In the UK, environmental samples oftentimes have higher antibiotic concentrations than in patients being administered antibiotics. And the study that actually discovered that fact, David, was research that was aimed at determining the level of antimicrobial resistant species in surfers in the UK. And they found that surfers are three times more likely to have 
antimicrobial resistant species in their bodies, these superbugs, than just your average person who doesn't surf. And this is mostly because surfers are swallowing lots of seawater, more than 10 times what other swimmers are. And well, uh, it's sort of a disgusting fact, but that seawater, even despite lots of efforts to clean it up, well, it's carrying a lot of sewage runoff. And that gets in the body, carrying with it all this antimicrobial resistant bacteria. Speaking of the environment and the health of the environment, there is a particular parasite called the hookworm that thrives in poor environments, literally economic poor places, but also poor in terms of their open sewage systems. It's generally thought of a parasite of poverty because it usually enters the body through people's feet as they walk around open sewage environments, and it can cause serious effects in people, including iron deficiency, weight loss, tiredness, anemia, and even decreased cognitive function, especially in children. And this was a problem that we had in the United States. It was actually pretty rampant in uh, the southern United States in the early 1900s as we expanded our population, but we didn't have the infrastructure and sewage system in place that we have now. And this parasite went away in the 1980s. But now researchers have found an outbreak of this parasite in a particular place in this world that has not caught up in terms of its sewage infrastructure. And people are being impacted by an infection that you would typically associate with areas that lack development. Now, David, where would you think that this might be occurring? Well, I can uh, sense a setup when I see one up, and uh, I really feel like you're leading me on here. Uh, So I'm going to guess something that maybe isn't so obvious. No, so think about it. It's a parasite that thrives on poverty, thrives on open sewage. (laughs) It would be a place that has poor infrastructure. Well, we... we, I'm, There's a lot I'm of sorry options for our listeners that you have here, here. Uh, but we were just riffing on you, literally swallowing uh, seawater sewage. Um, so I'm going to maybe guess for the UK, because they're also circling the toilet, a declining quality of life like the US we are here. So uh, UK, that's my final answer. David, remember, this is an infection of pot. I know what I said. Open Brexit, sewage. baby, let's go. <laughs> well, it's not the UK. It's the United States. Uh, that's my second guess. <laughs> Yeah, it's the United States, the same place that we thought this uh, parasite had disappeared in the 1980s. Well, it's back. The reason it's back is because... Like we discussed, in our declining infrastructure, well, that collapses real health effects. And one of those is this hookworm. Right. One in three people that were tested in a county in Alabama tested positive for hookworm. In fact, 73% of the people living in this area were exposed to raw sewage. It's just a problem there. And the residents don't have the money to put this infrastructure in place. But as we talked about in our infrastructure episode, a lot of municipalities don't want to spend the money on infrastructure. So what they've opted to do instead is start fining people for not putting in place their own septic sewage systems or their own piping systems. In fact, one woman was jailed for failing to purchase a septic system, even though the cost of that system was greater than her total annual income. And this is part of the reason why the UN was recently touring the United States, in particular the South, to examine the level of poverty. And the final report said that it was something they had never seen in a, quote, developed country. We can talk about that 
issue, particularly in a different episode, David. It's a serious concern and something that's not getting a lot of attention, surprisingly. You would think that if an area in the United States is experiencing raw open sewage that's resulting in a primitive infection that we were supposed to have gotten rid of, that this would be big news. But it's not because it's affecting people in poverty and not other people. But fake news. Again, that's something we can talk about later. But maybe part of the reason why this hookworm isn't getting the attention it deserves is because there are bigger health problems elsewhere. Thank you for bringing us together today to address an urgent threat. The Ebola virus is spreading at alarming speed. If unchecked, this epidemic could kill hundreds of thousands of people in the coming months. If ever there were a public health emergency deserving an urgent, strong, and coordinated international response, this is it. But this is also more than a health crisis. This is a growing threat to regional and global security. Public health systems have collapsed. Right now, patients are being left to die in the streets because there's nowhere to put them. Economic growth is slowing dramatically. And in an era where regional crises can quickly become global threats, stopping Ebola is in the interest of all of us. And the courageous men and women fighting on the front lines of this disease have told us what they need. They need more beds. They need more supplies, they need more health workers, and they need all of this as fast as possible. It's clear that our nations have to do more to prevent, detect, and respond to future biological threats before they erupt into full-blown crises. This was President Barack Obama speaking in 2014, and his special assistant and senior director for development and democracy, Gail Smith, said at the time, quote, This Ebola epidemic is the most stark notification the world has been given that all of us are vulnerable if all of us are not prepared. And so they were, of course, responding to the threat of a global Ebola pandemic, and it set off a huge injection of funding to the CDC for disease prevention. About $600 million was given to the CDC to help identify, track, and prevent the spread of infectious disease around the world. Well, that five-year funding is now coming to a close, and it does not appear that the CDC is going to get additional funding for disease prevention. And as a result, the organization is leaving 39 countries, including China, Pakistan, Haiti, Rwanda, and the Congo. And why is it a huge deal? Well, it goes back to what Dr. Logue says, is that if we're going to protect people in our own country, we have to have a presence around the world to prevent the spread of these diseases because the world is so interconnected. Someone that experiences an infection in one country can easily lead back to us through a a variety of different ways. And it's interesting that we're specifically leaving the Congo. I mean, this is just a great example of why this is a problem because last year there was another Ebola breakout that occurred in the Congo in 2017, and it was contained relatively quickly because there was a presence of medical facilities and specialists who could quickly identify what it was, where it came from, and how to prevent it from spreading. Well, these are the types of things that we need and that we're getting rid of because of this lack of funding. Being able to respond quickly when these outbreaks occur can be the difference between something that's very isolated and a global pandemic. Again, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control's full name is the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And that second part is so important, something we gloss over even in the acronym that we use for the CDC. And in the time of this increasing risk of pandemic because of these global factors we've mentioned, as well as antimicrobial resistance, well, the funding for this organization continues to be cut when we need it more than ever. 
And when it comes to global prevention of infectious disease, one of the vital components of that prevention is disease surveillance. This is one of the only times you'll ever hear us in this show saying, okay, surveillance here is good and an important thing that we need to be investing more money in. You'll probably never hear me say those words again, but there they are right now. No, I was actually a little uncomfortable uh, writing out the importance of surveillance, but disease surveillance is a very important component of responding to and preventing the spread of disease worldwide. And it involves identifying new outbreaks, tracking their spread, and predicting where they might go. Now, David, where would you expect the information on tracking disease to come from? Well, I mean, what would be your gut reaction? Uh, probably a twofold thing. So one, governmental organizations like the CDC looking into all this. And then uh, maybe some sort of uh, reporting body from hospitals uh, collecting this information on disease that comes in and sending it off to an organization like the CDC. That would be my guess anyway. Well, it's not a bad guess. And a lot of important information does come from hospitals and doctor's offices and other medically related places when it comes to tracking disease. But that's not nearly enough. And one thing you might be surprised to find out is that local newspapers and social media, these are called event-based surveillance. Well, they're actually very, very important. And as an example, the 2003 SARS outbreak, which started in China, was identified by the World Health Organization months before China officially announced anything was going on. And the WHO was able to pick up on this so quickly because of local news reports and social media rumors that they analyzed. And another example, in 2009, the fact that the H1N1 influenza virus was spreading was determined by looking at local reports coming out of Mexico. But right now, the consolidation of local newspapers has started creating a crisis for disease surveillance, mostly here at home in the United States. As these municipal papers either go out of business or are bought up or merged with larger statewide or maybe major city newspapers, well, local municipalities are losing coverage. Reports from small towns from places that would normally have this information tracked, listed, uploaded online, and made easy for researchers to collect this and analyze trends in health that resource is increasingly gone as focus shifts to these statewide and major city focus because of profitability concerns. And so that consolidation is a major threat to our ability to track the spread of infectious disease and also pinpoint where they start from. But it's not just spreading disease where this is impacted, but also research. There was a computational epidemiologist from MIT and Boston's Children's Hospital who published a paper in 2017 related to the outbreak of the mumps virus in the state of Arkansas. And the models in that paper that tried to explain why so many children were being infected by the mumps virus relied significantly on a local newspaper for context for some of that information coming out of hospitals. It's pronounced Arkansas. <laughs> As in, there's a really interesting history there about the pronunciation of the state. It originally was Arkansas. And then this like crazy guy wanted to pronounce Arkansas, and he like bought all the newspapers up and kept telling everyone it's pronounced Arkansas, and eventually it was. So there's a, a lot of negative things can happen when newspapers get consolidated. We lose the history and the... I mean, that's not entirely true, but that's, that's the TLDR version of what happened there. Didn't you always ever wonder why it's pronounced Arkansas? It doesn't look like this should be like that at all. I don't know, David. This sounds like another conspiracy within a conspiracy, and frankly, a little bit of fake news. 
But all these things that we've talked about, David, the spread of antimicrobial resistance, the way we are impacting the health of the environment, the health of our animals, the risk of pandemics, all of this, as you would expect, has a direct economic cost. You know, I feel honestly a little bit silly even having this this section of the show in here. Um, you feel silly about whatever it is you're about to talk about, but you don't feel silly about the pronunciation of Arkansas. It's Arkansas. I'll die for that. <laughs> um, I'm going to go ahead and point these numbers out just because they are staggering and they're interesting. But I mean, this this show, ultimately, we're discussing lives and we're discussing millions, tens of millions and potentially even more than that lives lost because of these problems, because of pandemics, because of antimicrobial resistance. And to have to sit down and, and turn this into equations of lost wages or, or lost growth potential uh, does a really terrible job of extolling the loss of human life, of humanity that this discussion actually is about. The efforts to quantify all this suffering and turn it into a stat that you can parade in front of banks or politicians to get them to recognize how much of a problem this has on their bottom line, that's sort of sick. But anyway, that's getting into another conversation. So let's just look at these. A report commissioned by the British government and published in May of 2016 tried to calculate this and see what global production losses would be if we weren't focusing on curbing this antimicrobial resistance. And that number came to $100 trillion, that's trillion with a T, by 2050, if we don't make these efforts right now. That's massive. And most of that occurs in low-income countries. They could lose more than 5% of their GDP by 2050. And this is during a time when these developing countries are supposed to be exploding in GDP growth, not losing it. The world's volume of exports could shrink up to 3.8% by 2050. Again, we depend on this global growth, but we're discussing, because of this antimicrobial resistance, a world where that is shrinking. Global increases in healthcare costs may range from $300 billion to more than $1 trillion with a T per year by 2050. And this also cuts into livestock production, which could decline from 2.6% to 7.5% per year which would be terrible for nutrition, for protein, but actually might have a positive effect on the environment. But maybe that's the conversation again for another time. And as these problems get worse, well, drug costs are going to go up. And as the cost of using these drugs go up, it makes our healthcare more expensive. And even more, as these simple antibiotics that we're currently using, these first defenses, well, as they become more and more useless, we have to develop more antibiotics to make up for them. And these antibiotics cost a lot of money to develop in the billions of dollars. And then they're effective only for a couple of years. And that just doesn't make economical sense for these pharmaceutical companies to produce them, to put that much money into the production of a drug that they don't even know if it'll exist and be useful for a long period of time. So we're seeing less and less investment in this area when we need it now more than ever. This is one of those negative externalities that happens when the perverse incentives of economics of the bottom line of running a business don't align with what's good for all of humanity for global health. And when we're talking about the cost of drugs, I mean, remember those carbapenem drugs and colistin, these drugs of last resort? Well, once you move from the first line of defense and you have to start using the second and third and then your last resort drugs, well, those costs go up exponentially from the second line of drugs being three times more expensive than the first option. And then those last resort drugs can be 18 times or more expensive than those first line of drugs. And frankly, just something that we cannot afford, both in terms of lives and in terms of dollars. So David, you usually ask me this question, but I'm going to change things up and ask you, what can we do? I'm glad you asked, Daniel, because I've been itching to tell everybody this whole show. And of course, the first thing is invent a magical drug that cures all this. 
Uh, that would be good. Uh, two, <laughs> nanobots that fly through our bloodstream, shooting the enemy bacteria and viruses. That'd be, that would fix this problem. But also the integration of humans with uploading our... Uploading our brains to the singularity. Yeah, that's good. Upload our brains. Then we don't have yes. to worry about this. Also, if we can somehow get our cells to conform to blockchain technology so that the bacteria can't track which cells to attack. Well, if we had blockchain cells, we could just jump back to where it was in a previous state and we'd be fine. Exactly. Um, I think investing a lot of money into expeditions to discover the fountain of youth and or the Holy Grail, uh, both of those would be very big for, for medical science. Also, we find that politically, it's a huge waste of resources when we're sending um, the magic school bus to do basically what is what what I consider to be museum trips in children for the purpose of education. Look, that's all great, but we have a resource here, the magic school bus, which could be, look, we need to use this for treating disease. This is a controversial take there, but- Call me crazy. Uh, in all seriousness, there are a number of things that we can do to help with this, and we are actively working on a lot of these problems right now. So the veterinary feed directive that passed the beginning of last year, well, that was very important in laying down regulations that'll help us control this antimicrobial resistance in livestock and eliminate some of those zoonotic antimicrobial resistant diseases. So spreading that kind of legislation around the world to countries that don't have that in place, like China, like India, well, that'll be a huge factor in, in helping with this. Stewardship by doctors, making sure this is something that we mentioned with our uh, guests, making sure that they are being responsible in the way that they prescribe medicine, prescribe antibiotics to patients, making sure patients follow the whole path of their prescription treatment plan so that we aren't stopping before the full treatment is completed, possibly giving a, the chance of this bacteria to develop that resistance and then lie dormant in the body or spread out into other systems. Uh, looking away some from industrial agriculture, things that we've talked about with Chris D'Alessandro in his episode, in episode 16, What We Reap. Vegetarianism is a possibility for getting away from large-scale animal agriculture. You know, I think Dr. Logue brought up a good point, which is so much of the unsustainable practices going on in industrial agriculture is being driven by our need to grow our population. And if we are going to rely on this indefinite growth, and we face a world of 10 billion people that we now have to feed and we have these unsustainable dietary lifestyles of high meat consumption, maybe in the face of global topsoil being completely depleted in perhaps 60 years, again, maybe we should question that growth. And instead of trying to fit our industrial agricultural practices to the model of indefinite growth, we need to start questioning the sanity of that growth in the first place. These are all really excellent points. And overpopulation, what is sustainable, what our carrying capacities are, these are all really tricky topics that a lot of people get defensive and contentious about and something that we will discuss in very great depth in the future. There's a lot to unpack there, but those are all good things to start thinking about now. And again, if any of you listeners have thoughts on these subjects, please feel free to reach out to us and we might integrate that with that show when we get started with it. And it's easy to fall into the trap of discussing health solutions to this problem because it, at first glance, is a health problem. But there also is an economic component to this. So we mentioned in our interview with the researchers that maybe part of the problem is that we don't have time to take care of ourselves when we do get sick. And that pressures us, pressures mothers, pressures fathers, pressures individuals to try and jump on antibiotics to quickly get over disease because they don't have time to get off work. You don't have time to stay home with a sick child. And so you need them 
healthy or at least appearing healthy as quickly as possible so you can get back to being economically productive. But a healthy society, one that respects the health of its individuals and really the health of the entire society, making sure everyone collectively is happy, healthy, and ultimately maybe, and I hate using this word, but it's true, productive, is one that also pays attention to the health needs of individuals and not from the economic incentives from the perspective of companies, bosses, CEOs, etc. And maybe it's a bit of a dangerous uh, suggestion, but things we can do to maybe lessen some of the regulatory restrictions on pharmaceutical companies to reduce the cost of producing a drug and to increase the speed at which new drugs can reach market. Uh, that's something, a balance we're going to have to take between what is healthy and, and responsible and also what we need as a society in terms of our health needs at this exact moment. Real quick, although we try to hit solutions at the end of each of these episodes, really what we're here to do at Ashes Ashes is bring awareness to problems, systemic issues, so that awareness can fuel creativity addressed at finding solutions and, and mobilizing people to execute solutions. So if there's something that we miss at the end of these shows in terms of the most viable solutions... Don't rely on us as your source for the ultimate solutions to these issues. We don't have all the answers. And part of the reason why we bring awareness to these issues is so that more people can be thinking about them and offering solutions. So in addition to all these that you mentioned, David, also the listeners, you are our solution. And as always, that's a lot to think about, but we hope it does get you thinking, talking about this and sharing it with friends, family, neighbors, and your community as a whole. If you want to learn more about any of this, read sources, detailed information, or a full transcript of this episode, you can find all that and much more on our website, ashesashes.org. A lot of time and research goes into making these shows possible, and we will never use ads to support this show, and we will never purchase ads as effective as that might be to clutter your news feeds. So if you like this show and you would like us to keep going, you can support us by giving us a review, and sharing us with a friend. Also, we have an email address. It's contact at ashesashes.org. And we encourage you to send us your thoughts, positive or negative. We'll read it. And if you have any stories related to this show, send it to us and maybe we can share that on an upcoming episode. You can also find us on your favorite social network. That means Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and of course, Reddit at AshesAshesCast, or in terms of Reddit, r slash AshesAshesCast. Next week, we've got a really great episode and one that's entirely devoted to talking about solutions. So if you're feeling a little bit depressed after this one, be sure to tune in next week. We're excited. But until then, this is Ashes Ashes. Bye. Bye-bye.